The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Here's the reading of God's word from the book of Genesis, chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Sur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Amalek, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Amalek in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Amalek had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die and all who are yours." So Abelik rose early in the morning and called all of his servants and told them all of these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abelik called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us, and how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abelik said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought, There is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindest you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother." Then Abelik took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abelik said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and healed. God healed Abelik. And he also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all of the wombs of the house of Amalek because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Praise be to God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Whoa, way back here today. Good morning. How are we doing? Good, 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 good. My name is Justin. I want to welcome you to Sacred City Church. If this is your first time with us, this is our gathering. Um, This is where we have missional communities, basically like little house churches that meet all the way through the city all week long. And then Sunday is where we gather together. We renew our covenant with a great God and we worship together. We sing together. Uh, We enjoy God. We enjoy his presence. We enjoy each other. And we want to welcome you here this morning. I've got a couple announcements real quick. Uh, number one, if you are interested in giving to say, we don't do 
um, an offering around here, we have a box in the back or about 80% of our people give online. Um, sacredcitychurch.com, you can give there or there's a box in the, at the box office um, back there. And then the second announcement is uh, for those of you uh, interested in learning how to read your Bible, a little Bible 101 class we're doing tonight at Front Street Brewery. Um, as of this morning, about 32 people were signed up for that. Um, so it's going to be a packed house. So um, if you want to come do that at 6 o'clock tonight at Front Street Brewery, downtown Davenport. We've got the, the basement area reserved. Um, don't plan on eating dinner there, please, because that just get makes things uh, a little confusing. Uh, you could get an appetizer if you want or drinks or whatever, but um, eat before you come, please. Bring a Bible, bring your notebook, and come hungry because it's going to be good. All right? So that's about it. I'm going to go ahead and jump in. I'm going to pray this morning, and let's dig into God's Word. Father, I thank you for another opportunity to um, put ourselves under your word, that all of my opinions and all of my ideas and all of man's ideas and all of man's opinions come to nothing, um, but your word is true. Your word is living. Your word is active. Your word stands forever. Um, when all things fade, your word remains forever, that your word is flawless. Your word is able. Your word is profitable to teach, to rebuke, to train us in righteousness. Your word is above and foremost of all things. And I ask today that we would get inside it, that it would get inside us, that it would read us as much as we read it. Father, I ask that you would give me a mind to think clearly, a mind to express myself clearly, that the that my, the lips that you created before that I was formed in my mother's womb, those lips, Father, that you created, that they would speak forth your eternal word today. That um, if it's of me, it would die. And if it's of you, Father, it would grow to eternal life in your people. I pray that this would be for our, our joy. This would be for your glory. I pray that you would anoint the ears of the people who hear. Jesus, you said yourself, people can hear and not hear. They can see, but not see. I ask that the people that you've gathered from all across the quad cities and all across the nation, the people that you've gathered here this morning, that would not be true of them. I pray that they would hear and hear, that they would see and see, that you would give them the eyes and ears of faith, that you would do this in us. You are the great shepherd of the sheep, Father. We ask that the Holy Spirit would be here today in power and authority to convict of sin, to convince of righteousness, to lead us to Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in your precious son's name. Amen. Well, good morning, Sacred City Church. It's great to be here with you this morning. It really is an awesome privilege uh, to come together each Sunday to worship our great God, to re be reminded of his covenant to us, and to sit under the teaching and preaching of God's word. This is one way, it's one way that God changes us from glory to glory into the image of his son. And I pray, you know, I pray that today we would see Jesus in all his glory. And as we see Jesus and as we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus, we would be changed into his image from glory to glory. Oftentimes that happens slowly. <laughs> and slowly is probably not even the right word. Right? It's like the way you're, it's, it's not as fast as your kids grow. But like last night, my, my son's running around in his underwear, you know, it's right before bedtime. He wants to sleep like daddy. That's what he said. Okay. And I'm like, and I, I'm looking at him. It's, you know, I'm looking at him 
I'm looking at my son and I'm like, this kid, when did he get so big? You know, he's explaining to me all this stuff and he's talking to me and I'm looking at him. And there's just, mo- there's just those moments. Of, if you're a parent, you know. Those moments where all of a sudden you look at him and go, wait, what? What? You know, like, how are you this big already? You know, and I feel like our sanctification is like that. When you're looking at yourself in the mirror, you're always too small. You're nothing's ever like, you're not looking at yourself and go, man, I'm growing. Right? You never notice that. You never notice that. But when your parents look at you, when your friends look at you, whatever, you know, you go back and look at the yearbook pictures, you can tell that, that you have grown. And that's the way our sanctification often looks like. It's slowly, but God is. He is faithful. He is molding you. He is shaping you into the image of his son. Now, you might not like it. You might not think he is. You might, not think it's, you might say it's too slow and it's too painful. And that's okay. I mean, you, you can say that. But God, I promise you, God is faithful. And that is something to rejoice over. Right? We don't rejoice, look at ourselves and go, Yes, I did it. I've grown today. Right? Nobody, maybe a pubescent teenager might say that, all right? But very few people take credit for their own growth, right? We don't want, I don't want us to take credit for our own growth either. I want us to go, God is faithful. He is shaping us. He is molding us. We're different than we were a year ago. We're different than we were 10 years ago. And it's not because of my tenacity. It's not because of my strong willpower. It's because of the faithfulness of God. So we're going to talk about that today. We're five days now into Lent. Many of us are laying aside some comfort to fast the 40 days until we celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, for those of you who don't know, we have a guide and a devotional that we are giving away for free. It's on the city. You can sign up for that at the box office after the service, and I really high, highly encourage you to do so. It's been um, really beneficial for my soul. I, I've enjoyed it this past week of doing it. It's a great, great um, guide put together by our Acts 29 network. So... Uh, but I'm also sure that if you are attempting to fast, you've already ran into the weakness of your flesh, right? Unless you like, you know, fasting something that doesn't really count, right? Something that doesn't really bother you, right? I'm going to fast eating vegetables. It's going to be tough, but I think I'm going to push through this week, right? As I was trying to figure out why my head hurt so bad Wednesday afternoon, I came to the realization that I don't think I have personally been without caffeine for probably at least five years. I don't drink that much, a cup or two in the morning and a cup in the afternoon, but my body has adjusted to it and become dependent upon it. So much so that as I attempted to go cold turkey, my head was pounding me, telling me, you need coffee. God gave you all things, right? All things for his glory and you're good. And this is one of the blessings of Lent and fasting. I am reminded once again of the frailty and the weakness of my flesh. I can barely resist the temptations of coffee, let alone envy or pride or comfort. Indeed, I can have no confidence, zero confidence in my flesh. When you fail, some of you probably have already done it this week, when you falter, When your flesh is weak and you give in to sin, do you think this surprises God? 
Do you think that you somehow, you know, you, he's in heaven. He's like, oh, change of plans. Totally, that one caught me by surprise. She gave in. He gave in. Let's, all right. Trinity, get together. Huddle up. Right? Change the game plan. We need to run the two-minute offense here. Right? So many of us think that our sin isn't factored into God's plan and that somehow when we fail and we falter, he's like, oh, really? Psalm 103.14 says that God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Common, right? We hear this at funerals from the book of Job. From dust we came, from dust we shall return. But we don't remember that we are dust. And oftentimes, right now we're going through the book of Genesis. We're going verse by verse all the way through the book of Genesis. We're in Genesis chapter 20. And oftentimes when we read about the patriarchs, that's the great men of old. Oftentimes we read these stories in the Old Testament and we somehow think that they were more like superheroes than real men. We think that God really loves superheroes. So we better act like them, right? Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac. These are the guys God loves. David, these are somehow superhero men that God loves, but he doesn't really, you know, he doesn't really like us. We're weak. We, you know, ever ask us, well, we're not like we should be. How's your prayer life? Well, it's not like it should be. How are you reading your Bible? Well, it's not like it should be. We constantly feel like that. We think that God loves superheroes. So what do we do? We act like them. So we act like we're strong. We shy away from things that remind us of our weaknesses. We fear real relationships that are going to expose our quirks and our faults and our sins and our weirdnesses. Okay, I'm just going to say it, right? We, we, I don't want the relationships to get that close and people are going to know that I'm kind of weird, right? We feign superhero status. And then we read this story from Genesis chapter 20, right? And if you've been with us for a while, we're like, what? Again? Are you serious? Are you kidding me? Abraham is going to try to pimp out his 90-year-old wife again? What is wrong with this guy? He hasn't learned? We read that. We're like, we're kind of shocked. This is the second time it's happened. Abraham, in our study of Genesis and basically his life now, has been up and down. Nobody's going to get this today. I mean, nobody's going to relate to this, right? He's been up and down. He's obeyed God and then he's disobeyed God. He's been faithful to the covenant that God made him, made with him, and then he's been unfaithful to that covenant. He follows God into the land of Canaan. And then he disobediently heads off into Egypt, pimps his wife out for the first time, right? God tells the guy, he gets kicked out of Egypt, right? There's just been up, up and down. He goes and then he rescues his nephew Lot. He meets Jesus. It's pretty cool. Two angels. He makes a covenant with Jesus. And then he prays for Lot. He prays for Lot and then he watches, literally he watches God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah while rescuing his nephew Lot again. And then, 
now on the heels of that victory, on the heels of standing there watching, you know, making the covenant with Jesus and watching God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, on the heels of that victory, Abraham disobeys God again. Abraham is a man of dust. He's fickle. He's up and down, hot and cold, in and out. He has fears. And oftentimes those fears override his faith. And he acts foolishly and sinfully. And it's also important for us to remember here that Abraham didn't write Genesis. Right? Moses is writing Genesis as he is leading the Hebrew slaves out of Egypt. So we need to see that Moses is including these failures of Abraham in the narrative for a reason. Right? Very often, if you're teaching your kids stuff, very often do you recount your grandpa's failures and your great everybody's failures. You just usually hit the high points. Right? Grandpa had four wives. You're not going, yeah, that was his ver-. you know, You're not going over there, right? Following grandpa's footsteps, son. You don't want... It. Why is Moses including all of... Abraham's failures, or many of Abraham's failures in this narrative. If you've read, now listen, if you've read Exodus, the second book of the Bible, you recall that the Hebrews are themselves very fickle. The people that Moses is writing to, they're very fickle, very hot and cold, very in and out. One moment they were praising God for rescuing them, and the next they were complaining and longing to go back to Egyptian slavery. There's one point in the narrative they were like, oh, for those meat pots. Remember those meat pots back in Egypt? They're remembering, I'm like, meat pots? You were in slavery. And you're remembering the meat power positive thinking, I guess. Right? So Moses is trying to show us something very important here about the nature of being human. By the na- about the nature, really, of being a fallen human. A human who has indwelling sin, remaining sin in them. We are fickle, we are weak, we are emotional, and we can be up one minute and deeply depressed the next. And the psalmist says, yeah, 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 that's what I mean. God knows your frame and he remembers that you're dust. John Calvin says over this text that we're about to read, he declares, In this history, in this history, the Holy Spirit presents to us a remarkable instance both of the infirmity of man, the sinfulness of man, and of the grace of God. So that's what we're going to see. We're going to see that today. We're going to see the wickedness of man, the remaining sin, the frailty, the dust-likeness of man. But we're going to see the strength and the power and the graciousness and the glory of of a mighty God. So I, w- I hope as we read this, this begins to help, le- help us um, interpret the Bible, help us when we read the Bible, that the Bible is not, hear me when I say this, the Bible is not a superhero training manual. You don't read it to find out how to get stronger. You don't go to the Bible to figure out how you can find a way to rid yourself of all your weakness, to purge yourself of all infirmity. That's not what you go to the Bible for. People today preach that gospel. It's a false gospel. I meet so many people 
who think that God expects us all to be superheroes. That the goal of becoming a Christian is to purge ourselves of all weakness. But then the good old Apostle Paul blows that theology up out of the water when he comes along and he says that God has specifically gave him a thorn in his flesh to keep him weak. See, people who are reminded of their weakness and they're continually reminded that they are dust, those type of people, as Paul says, can't be conceited. And pride is our great enemy. It's not insecurity. It's not a low self-esteem. It's pride. Pride is our great enemy. Paul goes one step farther and even pleads to Jesus to take away this weakness, take away this frailty, take away this brokenness in him. But Jesus responds three times and says what? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in what? Weakness. That's a key, (laughs) y'all. That's a key. Crucified Jesus on the cross. That's a hint, right? God's power is made perfect in our weakness, not in our swagger. So, no, Bible reader, the stories are not written to make you aspire to superhero status. The stories are written and lived out in the lives of real people to show you that weakness is mandatory and only God is without them. Weakness is mandatory and only God is without them. Without weakness, you have no Christ. Without weakness, you need no Christ. Did we remember the slide I posted? I think hopefully we've got the slide ready back there. Um, I posted this picture to Facebook this week and said that missional community growth is very similar to the way we mature in our sanctification. All right, I'm going to show This is what people think it looks like, right? This is what people think sanctification, becoming more like Jesus looks like, and missional community growth looks like. And on the right, that's what it actually looks like. Right? Now, you're moving up. You don't know it. There's seasons where you go backwards, I promise. But you're still moving up. You're moving in the right direction. But that on the right is what it really looks like. And that's what we're going to see from our text today. So we're going to see from the life of Abraham today. What we want in this story, I'm going to tell you, when you read it, when you read this story, what we want, we don't want this story to be there at all. We want to see Abraham get chosen by sheer grace. And then he, okay, okay. And progressively he just gets better and better. And then his weakness is left behind. But what we see instead is amazing faith, boom, lack of faith. Amazing faith, boom, lack of faith. We see this up and down, forward, backward movement. All right. That's what we see. That's what sanctification looks like. Go ahead. You can take that off. So, so as we study this text, let us think about that. This text shows us the weakness of a man, but it also shows us the strength of God. It showcases the fickle faith of Abraham, but also the faithfulness of God. And for all you guys uh, who didn't get your wife anything for Valentine's Day, well, at least you didn't sell her off, right? At least you got that going for you. Let's get into verse. Let's get into Genesis chapter twenty, verse one. 
From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he journeyed in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Okay? Now, remember, this is just off the heels of Abraham watching God destroy the city of Sodom, cities of Sodom and Gomorrah from a hilltop. And now he's on the move again. All right? He's moving. He's a nomad. Right? He's got, pulls up his tent, pulls up his stakes, and he travels. And let this be kind of a lesson to us all. Mountaintop moments are often followed by tests in the desert. Okay? Great experiences of God are also followed by tests in the desert. Temptations in the desert. Happens very often. And what we're going to see again right away is that Abraham is up to his old tricks again. He steps into the territory of the Canaanites. If you know anything about the Canaanites, they're not, they're not buddy-buddy, they're not pals. Um, there are wicked people that do all kind of pagan things, including sacrifice their children to gods and all kind of crazy stuff you're going to find out later. But he steps into this territory of the Canaanites. He walks into Gerar and he tells the old, familiar, white lie. Sarah is my sister. We find out later in the text, and we've, we've already talked about this once, she actually is his half-sister. So we kind of, you know, she is, she is my sister, but... He doesn't say she's also my wife. For those of you just joining us, this is indeed the second time Abraham has done this. He did it with Pharaoh a few chapters back, and now he does it with Abimelech here. Listen, all I know is Abraham, he needs to listen to a sermon or read a book on marriage, okay? He's pretty awful, right? God's made this huge promise. They got, I mean... God's made this huge promise. You're going to have a, right? We're, we're, we're one, one week or one chapter off of God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, but also God saying one year from now, Sarah, you're going to give birth to a baby. And Sarah's 90. She's like, what? And then she's looking at 100-year-old Abraham going, oh, man, we got to do this thing again. Right? Now, listen, if you're trying to stir up the old love life, selling your wife into sexual slavery is not the way to start out. Okay? This is not... This is not, it's not going good for him, right? Now, we've got several things going on here. A couple of things I just want to, I'm going to bring note of. Obviously, Sarah is a super hot 90-year-old lady. For Abimelech to want her to be part of his harem, right? This is just odd. Obviously, God has done something miraculous in her. She's smoking hot at 90 years old, okay? Okay. Right? You don't see too many 90-year-old chicks in Jay-Z videos, okay? <laughs> but for whatever reason, Abimelech, she, they walk in, he's like, who's that? She's mine. So Abraham has a super hot wife, and once again, he sins by letting her be taken by another man. Crazy. Right? Ladies, I seriously doubt that any of you had a worse Valentine's Day than Sarah. My husband didn't get me chocolates. Hey, it could be worse, right? Uh, yeah, she's my sister, actually. Ugh. But this is where the story gets interesting. Abraham is acting sinfully. Sarah here isn't guiltless. Sarah is actually going along with it. They've, <laughs> well, I'll get in that in a second. Sarah's going along with it, but who steps in? God does. Look at verse 3. 
But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, this is really good news for us. This is gospel here. God takes his covenant so seriously that he's willing to show up and make sure that Abraham doesn't screw it up. Think about that for a second. All right. God has promised Abraham and Sarah children who would eventually populate the whole world and be a blessing to all nations, but they're still barren. No kids yet. Sarah has already once taken things into her own hands and had Abraham take her servant as another wife. Do you remember this? That servant gave birth to a healthy baby boy named Ishmael, but God said, no, I reject Ishmael. And I promise that Sarah, she will still give birth to a baby boy even in her old age. So that promise is still hanging there. It's kind of hanging over them. She's not pregnant yet, but in the last chapter, Jesus told her that she would have a baby within a year. So we've got like this three-month window here. So we've got a really precarious situation going on. She's got, at the most, three months to conceive with Abraham, and here he is giving her away to another man. Again. I doubt that's good news for his sex life. Not only that, but what if she were to have sex with Abimelech? Wouldn't that throw doubt on how she got pregnant? Maybe God wasn't really faithful, or maybe he didn't really have the ability to give a gift of conception to a 90-year-old woman. Maybe it wasn't God who fulfilled the covenant. Maybe it was Abimelech. Maybe it's not God who's faithful. Maybe it's Abraham and my sin and Abimelech's sin. Maybe it's that. Maybe this birth, this child is actually from Abimelech. Can you imagine the doubt that would be shrouded over this relationship and the covenant and the blessing? But this right here, this text is so comforting to me. This truth really just, it just settles my soul And it causes me to worship God in the splendor of his sovereignty. What does God do when Abraham and Sarah blow it again? He comes to Abimelech in a dream. And he's got his dad face on. Right? Dads, you know this, right? We've got the daddy face. And then we got the dad face. Right? I clench my jaw when I do it. Jevin! Right? I got my dad voice. Or I got my daddy voice, and I got my dad voice, right? God's got his dad voice on right now. He's got his dad face on. I love this, okay? Let's just say, one of the things the Holy Spirit does when we're converted, when we come to Christ, when, when God regenerates our heart and gives us faith to believe, and we respond in faith, and one of the things the Holy Spirit does is it, it works in our heart, and it causes us to, cause, to call God daddy. Because we've been made right with God through faith, because of the work of Christ. So we call God daddy now. But for those who are outside of Christ, no matter how good you are, no matter how great of a person, no matter how moral you are, God, I'm sorry, this is how God comes to you. Outside of Christ, this is how God comes to you. God shows up to Abimelech in a dream and he doesn't play nice. He doesn't play cute. He doesn't give him 50 reasons why he shouldn't have sex with Sarah. He goes, hey dude, you're a dead man. That's the first thing he says. Now listen, this isn't just like, and Abimelech's like, okay, yeah. Abimelech, 
I'm sure rumor has gotten around that this God has just wiped out a whole city, a whole region. Hey, I'm the guy who rained down fire and sulfur and destroyed all the Sodomites. And you're a dead man. Right? He's not bluffing here. He's got a loaded gun. He's got his finger on the nuke button. He could do it any moment. Abimelech knows this. I love it. I mean, it kind of freaks me out, but I love it too. Behold, you're, you are a dead man. Now, this is a great reason for concern, right? And this God who just destroyed this city is showing up to this man in his dream. Think about that. God is so powerful. God is omnipresent. He can be everywhere he wants to be. All, he is everywhere all at the same time, even in your dreams. You think you're your own man. I love this. Sorry. Put this in your free will pipe and smoke it. Okay? You can't even control your dreams. He wants to be in your dreams. He'll be in your dreams. You can't stop God. God shows up in an unbelieving pagan Canaanite man shows up in his dream. You're a dead man, boy. <laughs> and Bible like doesn't go, but I'm a free moral agent. Right? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Now, this is interesting. Commentators say that God, this is a legal argument, this is legal language in the Hebrew here, and that God is actually um, kind of like putting Abimelech on trial. All right? And look, look what he does. And then Abimelech kind of offers up his defense. Look at verse 4. Now, Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? He's obviously heard about God's love for justice that happened with uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Did, did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, see, she said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes. I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. Now stop right there. Does God kill the innocent? Absolutely not. But I know we're all thinking, but none of us are innocent. True. But I want you to see this. Abimelech, when he comes to God, he says, don't kill the righteous. I didn't know. I had no idea. She said, this is my, this is my brother. He said, it's my sister. I have no idea. I did this in the integrity of my heart. Let's talk about that. If you are a moralistic person, you're going to get really mixed up in this text. Okay? Moralistic people want clearly divided lines between good guys and bad guys. My son always does that. We're watching a movie. Dad, is this a good guy? Dad, is that a bad guy? Right? He wants to know right away so he can kind of separate in his mind where, where, where he's at. Right? Well, if you're like that, this chapter is going to put your whole system on a meltdown. Because here, God, God loving Abraham acts like the bad guy. And godless Abimelech is the good guy. Abimelech, a pagan Canaanite, acts more righteously than the father of our faith, the father of the Jewish faith, and the father of the Islamic faith. If you're not familiar with the gospel, 
the good news that is found in the Bible, it is naturally to think that God likes the good guys while destroying the bad guys. But that is not what the Bible teaches, however. The Bible says that every single human is bad. Every single human is wicked. And only God is good. We're all guilty, but God saves some by sheer grace. And those people place their faith in the person of Jesus Christ and in the work that he performed for them on the cross. And they get forgiven. They get his grace. And those who don't, well, they're dead then. So if you really believe the gospel, you knew, you know that there are people, listen to this, without faith in God who are, moralistically speaking, better people than most Christians, than many Christians. It's called common grace. You don't have to be a Christian to be a good neighbor. You don't have to be a Christian to be a good tipper. You don't have to be a Christian to be a good employee. You don't have to be a Christian to be a good mom or dad. But let's not go too far here. Look what God says at the end of verse 5. In the integrity of my heart and instant of my hands, I've done this. Oh, I'm sorry, it's at the end of verse 6. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know you've done this in the integrity of heart. It was... And it was what? And it was I who what? Kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Whoa. Let that one rattle around in your head for a minute. You should highlight that. Abimelech puts his moralistic coat on. Say, God, you know I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know. She said, brother, he said, sister, I didn't know. And God said, I know you didn't know. And I know you didn't sin. You know why? Because I kept you from it. It was me. The reason you didn't throw her in bed right away when you got her, me. I kept you from sinning. Now, that needs to rattle around. That needs to go down. That needs to sink down somewhere. This is what common grace is. This is why everybody on the earth isn't a sexual deviant and a serial killer. God, by his common grace, restrains the wickedness of our heart. He restrains us in our, in our flesh. He restrains us. So the moralistic person can't stand up and go, well, I didn't sin today. That's God in his grace keeping you from sin. But then if you take that to the other side, let me just say this. God if he wanted to, could keep us all from sinning. God, if he wanted to, could keep us all from sinning. Behold, God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. That's a psalm. He does whatever he pleases. So if it were to please God to keep us all from sinning, he could do that in us. He could restrain us all through the Holy Spirit, through his grace. He could restrain us all from sinning. We would never sin again. So why does God allow sin to remain? Well, before I jump into that, first let me say that sin does have an end date. Thank God. 
God has gloriously set an expiration date on sin. And in the new heavens and in the new earth, sin, death, pain, mourning, crying, and shame will all be done away with and we will walk with God in the new heavens and the new earth. Praise God. He has already done this. He has started it with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that's coming to fruition. Just like a seed, once it gets planted, it's going to grow up. God has sown the seed of the resurrection into reality and it's growing up into the new heavens and the new earth. It's going to happen. For those of you who are in Christ, one day you will be gloriously without sin. No shame, no pain, no doubt, no fear. Oh my goodness. It's going to be a great day when we walk beholding the face of Jesus Christ. We don't even need a sun. It's going to be so bright. His glory is going to be shining so brightly. Oh, I can't wait for that day. But right now, Sin still remains. So I want us to put some pieces together here. Think logically here. If God could destroy sin right now, he could wipe it out. It it doesn't have to remain. He could cause all of us to no longer sin. But one day that will happen. One day that will be reality. If sin, sin therefore does still remain, right? Can we agree on that? Sin is still present in all of us, even believers, even the best of us. Even Paul says, I'm the worst, I'm the least of all, right? the worst of all sinners. So sin still remains. Therefore, God must have a reason. God must have a purpose for sin to be remaining right now in this season, in this time before the new heavens and the new earth. Right? Why? What are those reasons? Well, we could go on all, there's a lot of them, but I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you two. I'm going to give you two big reasons today. Number one, Number one reason sin still remains today is so that people would be brought low and they would seek salvation in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Richard Sibbs, reading a book by the great Puritan Richard Sibbs called uh, The Bruised Reed, and and he says this, God empties men of themselves and he makes them nothing before he will use them in any great service. See, the reason sin remains is so, because all of us in here, part of our sin nature doesn't want Jesus. We would rather earn it on our own. We would rather get to heaven and God pull out the big list of all the things we've done wrong and the list of all the things we've done right. And we're hoping that that list that we did right is one, one more greater than the list of everything we did wrong. And then we can go, let's do this, right? And we can square our shoulders back and we can walk through the heavenly gates with a swagger saying, we did it. I doubt my neighbor made it, but I made it, right? We have this desire. This is called justification. We have this desire to justify ourselves. To give a reason to prove to the world and to prove to God that we're good people or that, that we're worth saving. But the reason God allows sin to remain is so that we will be brought low to say, okay, I am nothing, I am a sinner, I am weak, I am a failure, I deserve nothing but death, hell, and the judgment. That's all I deserve from you. So, Christ, save me. 
right? I completely fall under the mercy. I completely fall into the open arms of Jesus. And I ask Jesus to carry me through the heavenly gates. Because that's the only way I'm going to make it is through the blood of Jesus washing me. Not in my own merit. Not in my own salvation. God empties men of themselves and makes them nothing before he will use them in any great service. So, one reason sin remains is to cut us deeply, to take our legs out from under us, to remove us of our self-righteousness, to remove from us our self-justification so we have nothing but God. To, to use a familiar phrase, to make us hit rock bottom. God allows, and I would say even ordains sin to do that. And if you don't think God ordains th- sin, just think about how he prophesied and promised a bruised and suffering Savior. And and Scripture says that God was pleased to bruise His Son. God used the sin of those men around Him, those centurions, those Pharisees, the, the, the people there. God used their sin. He used their sin to crucify His Son. He, Jesus can't die without sin. He can't die without it. God uses it for His own glory. Secondly, God also allows sin to remain to bruise his servants. God allows sin to remain to bruise his servants. What do I mean by that? Well, listen again to this quote by Sibs. After conversion, after we come to Christ, we need bruising so that reeds may know themselves to be reeds and not oaks. I wish people talked like this today. After conversion, we need bruising so that reeds may know themselves to be reeds and not oaks. What Sibs is saying is exactly what we see with God and Abraham here. God has chosen Abraham by sheer grace, but God is not done with him. He, he's, Abraham is saved, yes, but now God is shaping him. He's bruising him. God is at work humbling his chosen vessel. The New Testament tells us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And it is so easy for Christians to lose sight of the fact that they are no better than anybody else and that all of their good deeds are only a result of God doing his work in them. After conversion, we need bruising so that reeds may know themselves to be reeds and not oaks. Sometimes, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you forget what it was like before Christ. You forget the inner turmoil. You forget the struggle. You forget the weakness. And you just, you've got into this rhythm, this new rhythm, and and now you think it's easy. And I'm going to tell you, if the Christian life is easy, you're not living it. You've gotten comfortable in a spot. Here, listen. People who are sharing their faith openly with their coworkers, with their neighbors, with their friends, would never say the Christian life is easy. It's difficult. It's awkward. It's hard. They look down on me. I feel weird. I need your strength. I need the help to do it. A person who's living in intimate community with people the way God has set it up for us to do, like in Acts 2, 
People's doing, they don't say, oh, this is easy. Why? I rub people the wrong way. I get on people's nerves. I get on their last nerve. Right? They got to forgive me. I got to, you know, ask for forgiveness. All this stuff's going on. Being a Christian is not easy. So if you're in this comfortable rhythm, you better check your lifestyle. You might, like we talked about last week, you might be living in a peacetime mentality when in fact we're living in a war zone. So one of the things that God likes to do is he likes to allow sin in our lives to bruise us, to wound us, to remind us, you ain't all that, honey. Yeah, yeah, I know you got a gift. You can sing, whatever. You think you're pretty good all of a sudden, right? You're Mr. Christian now. I know you got the six Jesus fish on the back of your car, right? I get it, right? You don't have the little people with all your family. You got little Jesus fish, two big ones and three little ones. Oh, that a boy, right? You read the whole Bible? Oh, you're doing Lent? Wow, right? We can, we think we can think, we can be tricked by the enemy into thinking that we're oaks. You know, so, so these type of people, they often, you know, somebody's struggling with alcohol. Just quit. Just stop it. Hey, if you love God more, you'd stop that. Right? We, we, they give advice. They give advice. They think they're oaks. They've forgotten that they're a bruised reed. And they need the grace of Christ. They need the spirit to keep them swaying in the wind so they don't break. Let's keep reading. So he, God, God says, yeah, yeah, you didn't sin because I kept you from it. Now then return the man's wife. Look at this. For he is a prophet. We're going to come back to that. So he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die. You and all your, and all yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning. I love this. Abimelech opposed to Lot last week. Remember, Lot lingers. Lot wakes around. I don't know. Maybe second breakfast, then I'll take off. Right? And the angel has to snatch him out, bring him out. Abimelech, he's a pagan. He's not even a Christian. He wakes up from this dream. He wakes everybody up early and he says, we got to get on this right now. Calls all of his servants, told them all these things and the men were very much afraid. Now, there's two types of fear of God. There's the fear of God for believers that we're supposed to be in awe and wonder at his majesty. We're supposed to just look at him and just marvel. How could I be saved by a great, holy, righteous God and I'm so wicked? There's that kind of awe and then there's and that kind of fear and then there's this kind of fear. The unbeliever, those outside Christ, can only know one type of fear of God, and that is the fear of judgment. That is the fear that, oh, crap, I'm a dead man. And that's what they're feeling right here. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, I love this, what have you done to us? Look at this. Think about this picture here. Abraham, God's chosen vessel. The one family right now on the whole earth that is inside the covenant that is saved in this moment, Abimelech, God just calls him his prophet. First time in all of scripture, anyone's called a prophet. Abraham is right there like a kid in front of his principal. Abimelech is about to let loose 
on Abraham. Look at this. What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Right? Abimelech's a great moralist. Right? Shame on you. How, have you, how could you do this to me? God, this is brilliant. God is using a pagan Canaanite man, a king, to humble Abraham. God is allowing his sin to bruise the reed. Abimelech is confronting Abe in his sin. And Abe is shocked. Look at this. Oh boy, this is good. For those of you who get mad when your self-righteous boss comes down on you. Right? He ain't even a believer. Who is he to tell me I'm not working hard enough? Hmm. It just so happens God likes to bruise his reeds. And he'll even use pagan, unbelieving people to humble his people. I imagine God's in heaven going, let him have it, Abimelech. Go ahead. I've already told him once. You tell him. Abraham, right? Abimelech, letting him have it. And how does Abe respond? First, Abe is shocked. Like, what the? And then he responds in total self-justification. Does this sound familiar? Let's go. What? Abraham, 11, verse 11. I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place. And they're going to kill me because of my wife. Besides, you know, she, she is indeed my sister, the, the daughter of my father through the daughter, no, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And, and when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he's my brother. <laughs> I almost slept with your wife. You said she was your sister. Well, she's, got, she is half, she's my half-sister. You're digging yourself a hole, right? You're digging yourself a hole. He's trying to justify his actions. Do we ever do this? Do we ever do this? Self-justification? Well, what happened was, well, it wasn't really that bad. Well, I meant, well, you know, it was a white lie. I just didn't tell all the truth. A half-truth is a whole lie. How many of us have done this? We let that false rumor about us, if it's a good one, we just let it linger. Right? We just let it go on. We fudge our numbers to feel good about ourselves, Right? We tell people about our successes but not our failures. We let that image of us perpetuate that false version of ourselves, the, the, the superhero version. We let that linger out there. I actually do read my Bible for six hours a day. I'm surprised you don't. It's actually very easy. You know, like that. What? I want to say to Abraham, I I look at him and I just want to go, Abraham, you just watched God rain down fire and sulfur on a whole region. What are you afraid of? If God, if you thought, if God, if God, if if you thought somebody was going to take your wife, God could just, right, evaporate them. But this is so common for us, right? We can experience God do something great and then we forget about it. 
we can experience the love of God in the gospel and then we forget about it. We're fickle. We're weak. We're dust. Many of us were reminded of the gospel through the liturgy and through the sermon and through the songs. And then on Monday morning, we can completely forget about the gospel. And then we get mad because somebody got the last cup of coffee. Right? We get mad over these tit-for-tat type things. And a person whose heart is, in, is just drenched in the gospel and is just, is just saturated and marinating in the gospel, that goes down to all of us Monday through Sunday. But I want you to see this. See, for the first time in all the Bible, God calls a person a prophet. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And he does it in this situation. He doesn't do it when, when, he's, when Abraham's on the mountain praying for Lot. You know, he's arguing with, a little bit, you know, kind of working with God. Hey, would you save him for this many, this many? You're my prophet. Abraham, I am. Can I have some business cards, please? Abraham, prophet of God. He walks into he walks into this Canaanite town. He's like, prophets here. Boom, 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 boom. Anybody need anything? Just let me know. Right? That's what he does. God calls him a prophet when Abraham is at his lowest. God tells Abimelech in his dream. Uh, you need to have Abraham pray for you. Isn't this just crazy? How confusing, right? I thought God liked moral people and God is mad at immoral people. God right here is saying, no, 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 I, yeah, you're, you're real moral, Abimelech, but I need you to have the immoral Abraham. I need, he needs to pray for you. He's my guy. You, Abimelech, hmm? you mean that's your guy? Out of the whole world, you got that guy? He's your man. The guy who just tried to pimp his sister wife to me? He's your prophet? That's your number one dude. And all, you, your eyes roam to and fro looking at him. I'm going to get that guy. He's your man. And now that guy, the immoral old man, is supposed to pray for me. <laughs> He's supposed to pray for me. I what do I need prayer for? I haven't sinned. I love it. But this is how you know God really, it wasn't just this, you know, he didn't eat, you know, bad guacamole the night before and have this funky dream. Right? This is a real God showing up in his dream. Why? Because he wakes up. He lets Abraham have it. But then he goes, oh, okay. You're supposed to pray for me. Right? Who are you, Abraham? What did you do? What did you... Can you, can you come pray for me? This is an awkward situation. But this is how you know God really showed up to him. See, Obimelech obeys, and, he, and then, so he has Abraham come and pray for him, and then Obimelech obeys, and this is what Abimelech does. He lets him have it, and then if you read the next few verses, he blesses him. He blesses Abraham and Sarah abundantly. He gives them land, land, sheep, oxen, servants, and a thousand pieces of silver. The Waltke commentary says that a Babylonian laborer would have to work 167 years to earn that amount of silver. Christians, I want you to see this. Sometimes what happens is we come to God by faith 
And we know that it was all grace when we come. He rescued us from wherever He rescued us, and we know it was all grace. But then after a little while, we start, usually unbeknownst to us, we start to relate to God based on our works. Oh no, I can't share the gospel with that guy. I'm just as messed up as he is. Oh no, I can't pray for that girl to be healed. I I sinned last night. Oh, I can't go share my faith. I don't know enough. No, I'm not like Justin. I don't study like eight hours. Oh, I don't. Oh, I'm not like this guy. Oh, I can't. We begin to relate to God based on our works and not our faith. When we do that, we are placing our faith into our own performance and not into the grace of God. So easy for Christians to do this. The grace that saved them is meant to sustain them, but instead they go back to legalism, instead they go back to works righteousness, and they try to pray enough, and they try to read enough, and they try to serve enough, and they try to give enough, and or I just suck at all of it. Two sides of the same coin. Neither one is resting in the work of Christ. Neither one is resting in reliance on the Holy Spirit. This is, and God is showing us this. Can you imagine Abraham? (laughs) Abraham is not walking into this situation going, prophets here, let me pray for you. Abimelech just reams him. He feels like a kid. I can imagine this. He feels like a kid with his principal, right? I was there. I was the kid eating lunch with the principal, right? All the friends are out playing and I'm in there eating lunch with the principal. I get it. I remember what that's like. And then I imagine he kicks some rocks. He looks down and goes, yeah, you're right. I know I screwed up, but, uh, can I pray for you? That's a prayer from a humble vessel. <laughs> Been like, well, yeah, yeah, God told me you're going to anyways, right? Like, yeah, I just wanted to set off my chest. Wanted to make sure you knew you made a mistake. You sinned here. You almost got everybody in trouble. He did get everybody in trouble because God actually had closed up the wounds of all the women in the town. And what happens? This is amazing. Verse 17. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they they bore children. For the Lord Lord had closed the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. What happens? God heals them all. And who gets the glory? God alone. God alone gets the glory. See, Abraham walks in, the prophet of God, handing out business cards. He lays hands on people. There's no sin involved in this story at all. And Abraham gets the glory. He walks back out of that city with a swagger. He walks out. Let's start a ministry right now. Anybody got a big tent? Let's put a big tent up out in the middle of the desert. Let them all come to us. Can you imagine the money we can make from this thing? He just gave us a thousand pieces of silver. Hmm. 
This sounds like a lucrative ministry opportunity. But sin, God used sin to bruise the reed. And then God still gets what he wants. He still prays for and heals and blesses and works through Abraham. But now he's working through a humble servant. God alone. Who gets the glory? God alone. That's the gospel. That's what we're all about here at Sacred City. And something very significant happens. See, God shows Abraham grace by wounding him and then using him. In the midst of his foolishness, in the midst of his sin, God still uses him. And guess what? Throughout Genesis, this is the last time we see Abraham blow it big. I think that's important for us to hear. Grace changes people. The freedom found only in the gospel sets people free even from their chronic sins. The law does nothing but condemn people, but grace sets them free. Remember, God doesn't choose you or use you because you're holy. God makes you holy while he uses you. And oftentimes, that is meant to be, by definition, by design, that is meant to be humiliating. He will use your unconverted boss to humble you. He will use your mean, bitter neighbor to provoke you. He will use your alcoholic friend to convict you. He will use the sinfulness of other people to wound you, to humble you, to make you holy. It's going to be painful. It's going to be humiliating. It's going to be hurtful. It's going to be a long process. God is bruising you. But he's not doing it like a sadistic old man. He's wounding you like a doctor who has to re-break your leg in order to set it. See, we've been twisted by sin. We're born twisted by sin and God has to break that. He has to reset us and he puts us in a cast. Thank God there's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Listen to this from Sibs as I close. Therefore, let us not take off too soon, nor pull the plaster off before the cure be wrought, but let us keep ourselves under his work till sin be sourest and Christ sweetest of all things. Therefore, let us not take off too soon. Some of us, when God wounds us, when God humbles us, when God brings our, brings our sin up, we take off too soon. I can't handle this. Sounds like judgment to me. Can't handle it. We take off. Sib says, let us not take off too soon. And he also says, nor pull the plaster off before the cure be wrought. <laughs> be careful. I'm good now. Let's pop this baby off. Whoa. Take your time. 
It's a long process. But let us keep, listen to this. This is my prayer for you. This is my prayer for myself today. It's like my prayer for our Lent season. Let us keep ourselves under his work, under the hand of the potter, under the hand of the carpenter wielding the hammer and chisel, under the hand of the doctor setting the bone. Let us stay under his work till sin be sourest and Christ sweetest of all things. That's what this text is meant to show us. We are unfaithful, but God is faithful. And if you are a person in here who has never embraced Jesus Christ, Maybe you have never embraced Jesus Christ because you thought it was moralism. You thought it was come and be a better person. Only good people get in. I'm sorry that many churches have put that out. I'm sorry that many Christians have propagated that message, but that is not the message of the gospel. That is not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is we're all wicked. We're all sinners. We all deserve judgment. Only one, only one is without fault. That was the God man, Jesus Christ. And I ask you today, put your faith in him. Put your confidence in him. Lean into him for your salvation. And Christian, the same goes for our sanctification. So easy to get into self-righteousness. So easy to get pulled into legalism and works-based righteousness. So easy. Sanctification is nothing but returning again to the source of your justification and going, wow, thank God. I'm just reminded again, you wounded me. I saw my sin. I'm reminded again how much I need the gospel. I'm reminded again how far you went to pay my price. I'm reminded again, the sin I just committed, you already paid for on the cross. Father, I thought when I came to you, I was just gonna stop sinning. Now I realize you died for a person who's going to continually be in sin. This is amazing. Sanctification, returning to my justification, looking around, remembering, seeing what he did. And as I do that, as I gaze into the face of Jesus Christ, beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ, I'm made into his image. I become more and more like Jesus Christ. What a gift. What a gift. That's what Lent's about. It's not about determination and willpower and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and not do stuff. That's not what Lent's about. Lent's about getting the distractions off, putting things to the periphery and then bringing everything under and getting in the face of Jesus. That's what Lent's about. I pray that you enjoy it. I pray that you experience it today. Father, I thank you for your Holy Spirit. Only you save souls. Only you change hearts. Only you, according to Ephesians 2, can bring the dead to life. We all come before you spiritually bankrupt. Father, I pray that you would remind us that we are reeds and not oaks. That you would make us dependent upon you. And we, like Abraham, we would see your works. We would see miracles. We would see people come to faith that we never would have expected to. Because it's not dependent on our ideas or our outward appearance or our concepts of who could be saved. It's miracle. It's a miracle sent by you. So I ask now that you would go before us, that you would prepare our way. 
you would convict our heart. You would turn our gaze upon the face of Christ. You would melt our heart of stone. You would give us faith to believe. You would regenerate those hearts that are dead in here. You would sanctify us. And you, God, and you alone would get the glory that you deserve. We are dust. You are God. As we come to the Lord's table, let us remember that. That the God of all gods became a man. He became dust. So that we could be brought in to the Godhead. We could be brought into relationship with the Trinity. We could have, Jesus said, so I, I was the firstborn of many brothers. So we could be brothers and sisters with Jesus. So we can have a resurrected new creation body that one day sin will no longer be indwelling in us. We'll no longer have this struggle one day. Behold, Jesus is making all things new. As we come to the table, let us remember the God who became man so that men could know God. This body that's been broken for us, this blood that's been shed for us to cover all of our sin. We take it and we eat it and we drink it now for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.